Is it on? So, where should I start? How about we start at the beginning? With the fires? The very first ones. Honestly, I'm not totally comfortable with that. Well, mostly everyone in Georgia knows how you and John met, thanks to you testifying at his father's trial, but I get that certain details may be overtly personal. And my only goal is to get your side of the story. So maybe we should focus on how those events affected you and how that brought you here. That's fair, I guess. All right, let, let me see. To understand now, I should clear some stuff up. You know when you've lost something and you can't for the life of yourself find it? You tear the house apart, double check your dresser, triple check the backseat of your car, throw the couch cushions across the living room and you still can't find it? But eventually, you move on, learning to live with that uneasy frustration living in the back of your mind. A few months pass and that feeling's still there, but you've pretty much accepted that you're never gonna find what you were looking for. Until one day you do find it. And there's a wave of joy and relief and even some embarrassment because more often than not, it was staring you in the face the entire time. That's what it felt like to meet John. Then he disappeared and it was like losing that item all over again. But sadder. That's why I looked for him. Not because of guilt or because I hated Sheriff Davidson and wanted to sabotage the investigation or any other wild theory true crime fans have passed around. Trust me, I've read the articles. I've listened to the podcasts. We, the friends of victims, hear everything. I had just gotten back to Harker. I already had a black mark around here, so digging up this dirt wasn't going to do me or anyone else any favors, but ignoring it felt like the worst possible thing to do. What about Dora? From what I've been reading, she was a lot more involved in this than most people give her credit for. I don't have to tell you how controversial it was that she refused to testify. Dora only got involved because she was worried about me, which is something I'm used to since it seems everyone is worried about me. She keeps to herself mostly and definitely wouldn't have been comfortable in front of a jury and cameras and... Anyway, that's not important. She definitely wasn't digging up dirt to draw in more tourism or whatever the loonies say. However, when I really think back, I really wasn't determined until Lawrence came into the picture. Finally, I thought, someone else that'll believe me and maybe someone who will help me. Don't ask me why I felt that way given how our first meeting went. Meaning? It was contentious, stiff. He's not one to let his guard down, but here's the thing. I'm not one to ask for help often, but I know when I need it and Lawrence seemed trustworthy. He had this grief in his eyes when talking about New Orleans and John. It reminded me of the same grief I'd been living with. And it made me wonder if he was also looking for something. It seemed logical since maybe we were looking for the same thing. Which was John? Closure. Are you saying it was some kind of destiny? No, absolutely not. I don't really believe in that stuff. It was more like recognition, an unspoken relational contract, a I'll help you if you help me kind of thing. So if it was a contract, like you say, and the end of the contract was finding John, where is everyone? What's been going on since? Jory? I don't know. Can you elaborate? I mean, I haven't seen any of them since the trial. It's just me now, living with that frustration in the back of my mind again. 
living with the nightmares. I'm alone. And I have no idea where they are. starts the same way. I open my eyes and I'm back in that small, trashy walk-up apartment. It's the rainy season. It always feels like the rainy season in New Orleans. There's a weight on my chest, making it hard to breathe. The air is sweet-smelling and thick. I need to cough, but I can't. I can't sit up or move my head at all. All I can do is count the cracks in the ceiling. But I know she's there. I can tell by the breathing. A steady, heavy breathing coming from across the room. But it doesn't stay there. It gets closer and closer. She gets closer. That's when the panic sets in. I try to thrash around, do anything to get my body to respond. But all I can do is lay there, feeling like a brain trapped in an unresponsive body. Once she's so close, I can feel her breathing down my neck. That's when she starts humming. It's a lilting, relaxed tune you'd expect to hear from a drunk guy on the street corner. One I can never place. One I forget as soon as I'm conscious. It only exists here. This is when the dream can change. Sometimes I feel the prick on my chest. Sometimes on my shoulder. Sometimes on my back. But tonight it's on my shoulder. It's a clean cut and I feel no real pain but I continue to panic. The minutes tick by and eventually something shifts as I go from heavy to weightless. That cracked ceiling is closer than it was before. I'm floating, but she's still there next to me, still humming happily. Then I'm no longer weightless, but heavy and falling the distance between the ceiling and my mattress, through my mattress and into the floor. That's when I wake up. Ugh, it's, uh, it's 
Saturday morning, 3 a.m. I had to check my phone to know what day it is. Fell asleep on my couch again, and of course, had the dream again. Otherwise I wouldn't be doing this. I wouldn't even be awake right now. Exact same thing as before. No changes. I told my therapist about the dream coming back and he didn't seem worried. Said it was normal to be expected after everything. But at 3 a.m. none of it feels normal. At least the injuries haven't come back. Not since New Orleans. Just the damn dream cutting into my damn sleep. And according to my calendar, this morning officially marks six months since the Tucker trial ended. That means it's been six months of trying to get my life back to normal. I, I think I missed something about it. The APD offered me a contracted position right before the Tucker sentencing trial and I accepted against my better judgment. I guess I was hoping it'd scratch the itch. But it hasn't. Maybe I... Maybe I liked it. Going after something again. Maybe I liked how unpredictable and macabre everything was. Again, it felt familiar, like before. The more I think about it, the more I think I feel... heavy. Maybe tired. This is ridiculous. I'm going back to bed. And I did, only to fall to that floor all over again an hour later, like some eternal torturous loop. The dream was back, and it had been for weeks now. It's not that the dream had ever gone away completely, but I had spent the last two and a half years carefully concocting a series of coping mechanisms to dull it. I had become accustomed to it only appearing on bad nights, following bad days, but the coping mechanisms weren't helping anymore. Every night I would fall from the ceiling, through the bed, and wake up at 3 a.m. like clockwork, then do it all over again until my alarm went off the next morning. Of course, the physical marks that used to show up on my shoulders, arms, and back weren't there. That was the biggest difference between the dreams in New Orleans and the dreams here in Atlanta. In Atlanta, I woke up with panic. In New Orleans, I woke up with panic and several bloody injuries to take care of. No sharp objects in sight, but plenty of shallow cuts to make me question otherwise. I guess my sleepwalking was as bad as Jory's. At least changing states had fixed that part. But the dream still felt just as real. Just as terrifying. After trying to sleep and falling to the floor a second time, I called the only person I knew wouldn't be asleep. It was a call I'd been meaning to make for over two weeks now. And with the six-month anniversary of the Tucker trial, it felt even more overdue. Hello? Hey. Lawrence, my man, what's up? Haven't seen your name grace my phone screen in... months? Years? I looked at the time to confirm Griffin was just as much a mess now as he had been when we worked together. It was 4 a.m. and I'll be damned if he wasn't at a club. But he was coherent enough to talk. So maybe people could change, but only a little, only just enough. I was in no position to judge. Have you seen the news? You'll have to be more specific, buddy. I rolled my eyes to channel my frustration somewhere beside the other end of the phone call. Griffin had much more reason to hate me than I did be annoyed by him. 
Griffin had his issues, but loyalty wasn't one of them. No, that downfall was reserved for me. Be serious, you know what I mean. You were there then. I'm surprised I had to call you first. I was expecting a game of 20 questions when the first murder reached local news. Yeah, you're right. When was that? A whole week ago? Hang on. Two weeks ago. Okay, sorry. Now we can talk. I really hope you're not bringing this shit up for the reason I think you are. I'm going to ignore that. Quit dodging the question. Yes, all right. I've seen the damn news, and it's weird. It, it weirds me out. I'm worried for you, man. I was honestly hoping you were staying away from it since you weren't on the force anymore. You may hate me, but I still prefer you alive. An uneasy confusion slid under my skin at that last statement. The APD didn't have any investigators familiar with my ritualistic murders, so they needed someone with my... Knowledge of the supremely fucked up? I was going to say expertise. The last two murders have been too similar for it to be chance. I think it's just a copycat anyway. Just because it's a copycat doesn't mean it has nothing to do with you. Let's look at the facts. My sneer turned into a genuine smile at the familiar words. Almost every case we'd worked on together had started with those words. Griffin may have been a tornado of pure chaos while on the force, and probably still was, but he worked off of solid information, and that's what had made us a decent team. From what I can tell, the last two murder victims have both been men in their late 30s to early 40s, just like the murders from when you were in New Orleans. The bodies were drained of blood, and there was no blood around the injuries, meaning the bodies had to have been cleaned, just like New Orleans. Also, each man was killed in his own home with no sign of forced entry. I could practically hear him ticking off his fingers. Just like New Orleans. I get it. But wait, I'm not done. Now I'm about to make a guess, even though there hasn't been any information released about this next part. I'm willing to bet that there was at least one more similarity. I bet there were sigils, and not small ones, oh no. Big overlapping, indecipherable script covering every damn inch of the walls and floor. A goddamn nightmare of a murder scene. I stayed quiet. If it's a copycat, someone who knows the old case is in Atlanta, and if it's the same person, they followed you there. Don't work off of coincidences and guesswork, Lawrence. You're better than that. I wondered if you could hear my teeth grinding with annoyance, because he was right. I shouldn't have been surprised. Griffin had always been a good detective when I didn't want him to be, and wasn't shy to say what nobody wanted to hear. Annoyingly so. If only he hadn't been fired for doing coke in the precinct. My silence was not the welcome response he wanted. He wanted a heartfelt thank you, with a parade through the streets for stating the obvious. Stay safe, Lawrence. He hung up on me, to go back to drinking or whatever substance he'd been favoriting lately. And sleep wasn't going to find me anytime soon. I threw the phone on the couch and went to start a pot of coffee. I kicked on the vinyl player for the hell of it, hoping maybe the familiar records I constantly played in New Orleans would bring back some lost memories. Maybe something to help with my current puzzle. Nothing came, but the routine lent some comfort to what had definitely been a bad night. The sky was turning pink when I added whiskey to my coffee cup. 
At least I wasn't drinking it straight while chain-smoking on my back porch before the sun was up. Baby steps. I had just taken my first sip when the phone rang. Go for McHumphrey. Shit. Yeah, sounds like the usual bloodbath. I'll be right there. No cadets or techs anywhere near the scene. Last thing we need is... Well, I don't give a damn what Sergeant Ryan says. You may work for him, but I don't. If he didn't want me giving orders, he shouldn't have made me the primary. Yeah, that's not far for me. Be there in 20. It's incredible how suffocating a sterile, quiet environment can be. Needless to say, it doesn't always lend itself to open, forthright conversations. The little practice I sat in was located in a quiet pocket outside the perimeter of the city, so even the traffic sounds breaking through the concrete walls were minimal. There was just me, sitting in the small room decorated with rose curtains and an overly firm couch to cover its clinical reality. Just my breath my racing, pounding heart. And no matter how many times I had done this, it was never any less nerve-wracking. Trust has never been my strong suit, and neither has honesty. But my sleep had gotten so bad, eventually I had agreed to embrace a little bit of productive discomfort. There I sat, waiting, anxiously, as the doctor across from me stared blankly anticipating, waiting. She was nothing if not patient. Patient people know silence is the ultimate tool to get the information you want. All you have to do is wait. I'm sorry, what was the question again? Have you been able to leave the house lately? Well, I'm here, aren't I? Fine, no, I haven't. I went to get the mail two days ago and I saw something. Something? You know, something. Sometimes I see shadows move in my peripheral and brush it off. But this time it looked, it looked solid, like a man. He was sitting under a tree a few hundred feet away. He had a flat brimmed hat pulled over his eyes and was wearing all black so I couldn't make out any details. Did he stay under the tree? He's not in the room right now if that's what you're asking. But it freaked me out. I had planned on going grocery shopping for me and Hendry, and I had to change plans, so no, I haven't really left the apartment. Do you usually feel followed? Not really. It's been on and off since high school. I was thinking the other day, you know, reminiscing, and I remembered right after high school, before I left for New York, something similar happened. Every time I left the house, I was looking over my shoulder, but I always assumed I was jumpy because I was dealing with the fallout of the fire. Your home had a fire? It's complicated. There was the Delks barn, which was more of an inferno than a fire. The minute the firefighter woke me up, I knew it was beyond saving, so I just watched. Nobody spoke of it around me, although it was running in the paper, and a few weeks later, I woke up to another fire. Except I hadn't walked miles and miles to start this one. I had set the fire in my closet. I'm not kidding. The fire department said there had been an accelerant poured on my clothes and a single match had been thrown. So you're saying you started the fire? Well, yeah, who else would it have been? 
Didn't you say this was around the time you started feeling followed? I had no response to that. I was already vastly uncomfortable with the direction this conversation was headed, and Dr. Simone was asking questions I had always been terrified to ask and answer. No, I wasn't going to answer her question. I took a note from the doctor herself and stayed quiet, unwilling to answer. She caught on quickly. And is this second fire the one that gives you problems? No. It was the one after that. It was the last fire before I left for New York. That's the one I have nightmares about. I had been difficult that summer in the words of my parents. I mean, look, I was an 18-year-old girl. Of course I was difficult. I think they felt I was out of control and going through some extreme rebellious phase. They did the only thing they could think of, which was consult with our pastor, Pastor Shaw. In their opinion, both my parents and Pastor Shaw's, this newest cry for attention was a spiritual problem, something we could fix as a team. So while I was researching sleep clinics and trying to fix my own mess, they suggested some counseling. I said, sure, why not? Because at that point, I was honestly willing to try anything. I mean, do you know how terrifying it is to know that at any point you could go to sleep and wake up surrounded by fire, if you woke up at all? So is it a memory or a nightmare? Tell me about it. It, it starts when I fall asleep. I'm back in the study at the back of the church and Pastor Shaw is sitting across from me. I'm incredibly uncomfortable. His face is grim and neither of us are smiling. I can feel neither of us want to be there. It's so detailed. Water stains dot the arm of his reading chair. The air smells like mildew and dust and unanswered prayers. It makes me want to gag, just like in real life. And the wooden stool I'm sitting on just keeps creaking. I can't stop fidgeting, and I just keep nervously adjusting the stiff wool dress my parents made me wear, the one they had clearly chosen to show that I was innocent and not a threat. I try to distract myself by reading the titles on the shelf behind Pastor Shaw's head, but then I lose interest in even that. When I focus my eyes back, I notice the pastor's lips are moving. At some point in the minutes, maybe hours, you know, time moves differently in my dreams, Pastor Shaw had started talking to me, lecturing me, but I can never hear what he's saying. It sounds muffled. No, it sounds like popping. No, crackling. Fire. The revelation jolts through my bones Streams of smoke rise from either side of me and I leap from the stool and see the singed handprints where my own hands have been white-knuckling my seat. Although there's no fire present, smoke keeps filling the room. Pastor Shaw watches the chaos entirely unfazed until he stands slowly, then lurches to grab my wrist, then my throat. He starts saying something to me angrily, and although I can't make out his words, I can feel it. I can feel the hate of his words collecting at my core. I can feel his spit and the heat of his breath on my face. He throws me back blindly into the burnt chair and for the force sends me careening into the bookshelves behind me. The last thing I feel is my feet twisting below me and the last thing I hear is a crack in my skull. And then I wake up. And can you fall back asleep after that? No, absolutely not. How can I sleep when the room still smells like smoke?
It had taken me about four hours longer than I would have liked to to make it to the small apartment off Ponce. A sergeant of the zone where the crime scene was located had insisted I checked in and be briefed with everyone else, which had pushed back my original ETA. Thankfully, Detective Kelly, a member of APD that had been assigned to the murders and one of the few officers I didn't think was a complete idiot, had been on the scene first. I finally arrived at 8 a.m., coffee thermos in hand, and made my way up the steep concrete steps. Four police cars and an unmarked white van were parked on the street. A parole cop was taping off the narrow driveway and large porch. It was a type of porch usually only found in southern states, spoiled by warm weather. The apartment was on the top floor of an 18th century mansion that had been converted into seven separate apartments. This wasn't an uncommon living situation in Atlanta, and definitely not out of place for the area. Unfortunately, these complexes were also known for giving little thought to security. There was rarely more than a floodlight by the front door, and I'd never seen one with security lighting around back. I had just entered the main foyer when Detective Kelly came rushing down the stairs to brief me. All right, despite the sergeant's best efforts, I'm here. Give me the report. Forensic says the murder appears to have happened between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. this morning. So, nice and fresh for us. You love a warm body. Any security cameras? Nope. Neighbors two doors down have a camera on their front door, but the image was just out of range and didn't catch any activity coming or going on the street. Of course I knew there wouldn't be a camera. We hadn't found any video evidence for any of the ritualistic murders, here or in New Orleans, and that didn't seem like an accident. The routine questions continued. Any forced injury? Negative. That goes for both the entrance and the apartment door. We made our way up the wooden steps as activity continued to buzz around us. Residents peeked at the activity from their windows and peepholes. Teams of two were securing warrants, interviewing neighbors, and sweeping for evidence. Forensic techs ran up and down the steps, brushing past with urgency and confidence. This was nobody's first rodeo, and it appeared that my request for newbies to stay off the scene had been fulfilled. So no video footage and no forced entry which means the attacker was probably invited in. At least this guy is consistent. Also, make sure every ashtray on this porch and inside are collected for DNA. But Lawrence? Kelly stopped just outside the cracked front door to the apartment, blocking my path. Suddenly, very serious. There's something else. The family called in their own consult, and the captain approved it. I ignored Kelly, pushing through him like he was nothing more than a curtain. I had dealt with private eyes before, and being one myself, getting rid of whoever this was would be no different. I was already late to a crime scene, so best be direct. Nothing can prepare you for walking into a crime scene in someone's home. No matter how much of an average show the victim was, their home is a shrine to their past personality. That's now gone. Do it enough and you start to realize two equal truths. Number one, everyone is the same. None of us are as unique as we think we are. There's always someone that has the same espresso maker or the same collection of books or the same offbeat hobby. And number two, nobody is completely the same. Nobody takes their coffee the same way and has the same collection of Ninja Turtle memorabilia. Nobody has the same collection of dragon jigsaw puzzles and decorates their home with the same pictures of kittens wearing sweaters. All things I had seen before, but only once. 
And even though I was usually a creature of habits and rules, even I couldn't deny the duality of these rules. I stepped into the poor bastard's living room, neglecting to steal myself from the metallic, earthy smell, both fresh and drying blood. I instantly regretted that I hadn't. It hit me like a baseball bat to the gut. Something wasn't right. The living room, which was normally this killer's preferred location to kill and drain the body, was untouched. The walls were a clean gray and the hardwood floors were clean except for a few boot scuffs. I made a mental note to check if they were from my team, the killer, or the victim. Beyond that, nothing was out of place. Kelly pointed me toward a door propped open at the back of the living room that a forensic investigator had just come out of. He walked on a plastic runner as to not disturb any potential evidence, something the footprint fiend had neglected to do. First thoughts? I will be sending the sergeant that briefed me a strongly worded letter. Those were my first thoughts. One of the same demonic ritualistic murders had been his exact words, and this was anything but. I had investigated four ritualistic murders in New Orleans and now three in Atlanta. All had followed the same pattern. A man found splayed out on his living room floor, drained of all blood and no blood around the body, except for the sigils. There were always swirling sigils and runes found painted in blood around the body in a perfect circle. It was practiced. It was habitual. This was not the case for this victim. A male in his mid-forties was propped in a seated position at the head of the bed. Stiff white cords were strung from his wrist to each side of the headboard. The position was very a la Catholic rosary with a hint of bondage gone wrong. His head was contorted to the side in an unnatural position, and he appeared to be mid-undress, in only a pair of boxers and unbuttoned dress shirt. His eyes were already starting to go milky and white. And there was blood. Gone were my expectations of delicate, careful script. The comforter, which the victim was lying on top of, was absolutely covered in blood. Crimson spread from the center of the bed where the body had been tied down and grew brown toward the edges, where it was less saturated and had already begun to dry. On the white wall behind the headboard, a cross sitting on a full circle was the only symbol visible in the room, and it hadn't been painted on daintily. It appeared to have been smeared on with an open hand. One thought of mine screamed above the others, that he had never been meant to be discovered like this. Maybe the killer had planned to put him in the living room with the regular neat text painted around him. Maybe they'd been interrupted. Maybe this was a quick version of the regularly precise ritual. It was plausible. It was more than plausible. And judging by appearance, they had been rushed. Which means they were scared. Maybe we were getting closer. I want someone looking into that room now. Don't worry about it, Kelly. I can do that. What? You look like you've seen a ghost. Maybe you're the last person I expected to see here. Or need here. Or one giving orders on my crime scene. I raised you a different idea. Maybe I'm about to save your asses. A muscle in Lawrence's jaw feathered. A sure sign of the annoyance I had already predicted. I hadn't known he was working the case when I'd arrived, but I wasn't surprised to see him in the way he was clearly surprised to see me. <sighs> What do you need, Dora? 
oh, I don't need anything, but apparently y'all do need me. The parents of Kevin requested I was on site for the initial investigation since this is clearly of a macabre nature. I helped them with a little paranormal issue last year, so I guess they trust me. Unlike the ABD. Kevin? That's his name, right? But maybe to you he's just victim number three? Lawrence followed my line of sight to the body strung up across the bed, and his annoyance took on a new form. Anger. He turned hotly to where his number two, Kelly, had been before realizing he'd slipped out the door. I have a bad feeling you're my crime scene consultant. Please tell me I'm wrong. Uh, That'd be a lie. Listen, I know you don't care, but I'm actually pretty respected in the Southern occult community. You could have someone less qualified than me on your crime scenes, so be glad it's me, all right? Maybe give me a chance, for old time's sake. Lawrence opened his mouth to argue as I cut him off. I'm going to make a prediction. I will help you solve this, and in the end, you'll be glad I was here. Is that a prediction from you or some other power? I smiled instead of responding. I don't do predictions, only bets. Aren't those the same thing? Just with man-made consequences? I won't make money from a prediction. Fine, if I prove helpful... And not a headache. (laughs) I will make a video saying your methodical, investigative mind is superior to any intellect or knowledge I possess. But if I win, you'll let me read your tarot. You know I don't touch that stuff, and there's no money in that. Oh, but isn't pride worth so much more than money? Lawrence didn't respond, just extended his hand to shake on it. Once we were finished making bad deals in the bedroom of a dead man, we turned our attention to more important things, like the dead man. All right, Dorothy. See anything I don't? Go on, consult. Well, that's Zigil for starters. At first glance, it appeared to be a cross on top of a circle, so I thought maybe something from the Christian lore, but it's much closer to the alchemical symbol for antimony, a symbol of man's animalistic nature and potential. The word wildness seems a fitting description. (sighs) Finally, all that useless information you fill your head with may come in handy. Looks like we're a team again, kid. But I look forward to beating you anyway. Lawrence left the room to find his number two and most likely give him an earful. I stepped closer to the body. I had seen plenty of dead bodies while hanging at the morgue with Morgan, but this was the first time I'd observed a crime scene in person. I had steeled my emotions well until now, disconnecting myself almost entirely from the lifeless, bruised body in front of me. And not just that, but from how human this apartment was. Everywhere I looked was another indicator of just how human the tenant had been. Shoes kicked sloppily by the door, takeout boxes from the nearby taqueria overflowing in the kitchen trash, I allowed myself one single moment to feel the impact of it all. But it didn't hit like a wall, as I'd expected. It was a slow, bitter taste in my mouth. And a single tear I quickly wiped away. But as I looked closer, I noticed the small gashes. I slowly shifted the white button down one inch over with the tip of a pen to reveal several small, clean slits peppering the man's chest. And my stomach dropped. Maybe Lawrence had the right idea to make him a number instead of a name. Maybe it would have been easier.
That Creepy Podcast is a bi-weekly podcast written and produced by me, Theodora. Special thanks to our fabulous voice actors, Joseph Teagle, Katie Collier, Emily Black, Chris Williams, Nero Mercado, and Stephanie Sparks. Main theme by Theodora and Seth Johnson. Music by Zach Tupper. Additional scoring by Seth Johnson. Production by Seth Johnson. And last but not least, visit our website, thatcreepypodcast.com, for links to merch and more. We dropped a pretty awesome hoodie that myself and friends of the pod have basically been living in, so definitely check that out. We're so thrilled to be back, and we will see you next time.